Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 322, recorded February 7th, 2023. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Calvin Hendricks-Parker. Welcome, Calvin. Awesome to have you here. I'm excited to be back. I love it's kind of my annual retreat. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Your, your annual drop-in to, to share all your ideas with us. You got some good ones to talk about, I know. Also want to say thank you to Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub for sponsoring this episode. If you all want to connect with any of us, me, Brian, Calvin, or even just the show, you can find us over on Fostodon. We're all over there, actually, on Mastodon. So you can find the links in the show notes. And if you're listening but not watching, just go to pythonbyside.fm slash stream slash live, where we will be streaming live every Tuesday, usually, but you can definitely subscribe to get notified there. Calvin, I know you've been here before multiple times. You always come to put us to shame with your fancy camera that you got going. We love it. But tell people who maybe haven't heard about you or met you before who you are. Uh, sure. So I'm Calvin Hendricks-Parker. I'm co-founder and CTO of Six Feet Up. We are a software development company that helps digital leaders transform their impact. Uh, we do a lot of interesting work now around impactful projects. So it's like climate change, making the world a better place, uh, in addition, I've started a couple communities. So the IndiePie community here local in Indianapolis. And then we've kind of branched out from that into some little local conferences into now Python Web Conference. So that's yeah. probably the big thing you'll hear from me uh, at least this month and next month. Yeah, we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Yeah. But that, that's an amazing conference. You have, I would say, potentially more talks or on par as many talks as US PyCon. I mean, it's, it's really a lot going on it, there. Last year, there were almost too many. Like it was so good. I just kept saying yes to everybody. Um, this year we, we pulled back a little bit. We had more submissions. We'll talk about this later, but it was really hard to choose. Yeah. It's tough to say no to deserving people, but oh, it's so, so point, much talent. So many great people. Indeed. All right, Brian, kick us off. Um, I just wanted to talk about packaging today a little bit. I've got, I'm splitting it up into two segments, but I really want to focus on right now on the PyPA has a packaging Python projects tutorial page. Um, it's linked in, in the show notes, of course, but I think this is a good, it's really pretty good, well-written. And so I want to point people in this direction. If if you want to share your Python code with somebody else, packaging it is the right way to go, I think. Um, and this, uh, this tutorial walks through, it, it's not necessarily trivial to do it. So, and it, I wish it was easier, but it, it's not bad. So uh, it walks through what you, you know, walks through setting up your directory structure. Um, it's, and then you have to have some package files with it. You've got to have a license file and a pyproject.toml now and uh, a readme. And then it talks about your source directory and your um, test directory. Um, so you've got the directory set up. Right, and then I, what I know you're a fan of the source directory for packages. <laughs> it looks like, uh, yeah, PyPA you, is you're, well. exactly. Your philosophy is winning out here as the official. <laughs> recommendation yeah um and i i mostly i used to have good reasons behind it now i just like having the top level stuff just be packaging and having the actual source code be somewhere else in the source directory it just in it it's a while you're developing it's it's nicer if you have a single the there is like caveats though if you have a single file that you're just sharing that might seem like overkill and i i i'm fine with of course, I have packages as well that are single file that I don't do this with. So you don't have to, but most thing, most projects are going to have more than one file um, if you're sharing it. 
So um, there's this, so, and then what do you put in it? So it talks about what you put in the different things uh, in the PyProject.toml and uh, a little bit into the README and some of the metadata. Um, the uh, One of the things we're going to jump into a little bit later in the show is that there are lots of options for what build backend you use. Um, this this project itself or this document uh, talks about hatchling, setup tools, flit, and PDM. Um, and they neither of them look that different. And they kind of do the same thing, but you can have different metadata that goes with it. So um, that's, I think, both a good thing that we have options and a bad thing that some people don't know how to choose. So um, uh, is it a really tough to like know why should you do it? I've, maybe setup tools probably shouldn't be the choice. I feel like that you yeah, know kind of moving a little bit away from that but the history yeah, here is so deep like you yeah. feel like there's, there's like a whole day a whole college course you could give on why these things are the way they are now yeah <laughs> yeah so the in it the project the tutorial goes down into even distributing so all the way down to um uh recommending that you uh use twine to upload to the test repository test pypi um, and you have to get a token and it's not trivial and all this sort of stuff. So it's a little, it's still a little daunting, but this will walk through, walk you through the, all the steps. I have a personal opinion, of course, and my opinion is read this and then check out Flit. Uh, because for simple projects, Flit is, I think, still the easiest. Um, it replaces, uh, the build step with, uh, Flit build and it replaces, uh, the creation of some of these files with flit init and it replaces the twine upload with just flit publish and i use it on a few projects and i haven't had reason to switch yet um there's there, it's not perfect but it's pretty easy for small projects so i would say read both of these if you want to share some python code so Excellent. Yeah, very good recommendation. And I think people need guidance here because there are so many choices. There's going to be a lot of conversation in the Python yeah. space around this, actually. For sure. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Let's move on, though, for right now. Real-time follow-up here. As of about 30 minutes ago, Ofec, the creator of Hatch, uh, and I are going to have a conversation March 1st on Talk Python. So if people want to hear more about Hatch, that's coming up nice. in about yeah, three weeks or so. But what do I want to talk about? Something fun. Last time we had the unrepl. This time we have the untangle. <laughs> so untangle um, by ST Chris on GitHub converts XML to dynamic Python objects. So thankfully, we've largely moved past XML. And really thankfully, we've largely moved past XML namespaces because that just is a complication that never needed to exist. But there's still plenty of XML stuff out there that people have to work with. So here's a cool little library that people can use. So we already have XML support in Python through the element tree API, which is, it's pretty nice. It works well. You give it a XML document, but then you, you do, you sort of navigate it through like child parent or dot attribute. There's, there's like some, you know, it's not the totally the cleanest, most straightforward API. So with this untangle thing, you can treat it like a Python object that just dynamically adopts the the nodes as uh, fields of that those objects as a hierarchy, right? So super simple. You just get it to parse either a URL, a file, or from a string, just an XML string. There's an example that is just real simple. It has a root and it has a child node. And on the child node, it has an attribute where it says name equals child one. 
Okay, so if you were to load that up with this untangle thing, you just, whatever you get back, you say dot root, because that's the first element. If you wanted to say, for example, that name attribute, say dot root, because that's the name of the root is whatever the first element. Then the next element is dot child. And then to get the attribute, you just treat it like a dictionary and say bracket name and outcomes, outcomes that value. So that seems really, really clean and nice. It does look yeah. clean, other than the fact you're still dealing with XML. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> I was just dealing yeah. with XML this morning. Yuck. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I suppose there's an API for enumerating things. We have multiple ones, right? You could have child, 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 child with name one, child with name two, right, as a, a list of things in this XML. Um, so it's there's probably... You know, maybe if there's multiple ones, I don't know, maybe it's a list or something I have to look, actually realize I didn't totally look into that, but <laughs> it's uh, it's a pretty cool library if people are doing uh, things like that. They can definitely uh, check it out. Here we go. Maybe, yeah. I think I will I'll, try this out because I, I have used elementary and um, and it yeah, it does the job, but I always thought maybe it could be easier. So maybe. What's maybe the they'll... speed like? Do you know anything on if it's fast, slow? Honestly, I would imagine what it's doing is it's probably using element tree. Yeah. It's just like a thin wrapper over top of it. But I don't, I don't know. Let's see. Um, oh, it's using yeah. diffused Sax. XML yeah. sax. Okay. I have no, I, I don't know anything about sax XML, but yeah. Okay. Pretty interesting. Hmm. No, I don't know anything. It doesn't, unfortunately, the, the, the readme doesn't have a lot of information about, you know, uh, like its performance and other things, but yeah. They also have a blog post you can check out about why they built it, which is kind of neat. So also sweet, short and sweet. But check it out if that sounds like something that would benefit you. That's very cool. Indeed. All right, over to you, Calvin. Well, something else that could benefit you is going to be uh, MyPy is official 1.0 released. Uh, I think this was as of about a week and a half ago. So it's pretty pretty new news, a uh, ton of stuff here. So for those who don't know, MyPy is the you know, static type checker for Python, basically a Python linter on steroids. Uh, so if you are using TypeHence, this is going to be a great way for you to make sure your code is uh, basically ready to go before it even runs. Uh, something a lot of developers coming to Python from other stat statically or strongly typed languages uh, really appreciate. And I think it's something that a lot of Python developers are moving to, especially with like the, the surge in popularity of languages like TypeScript because the IDEs are really supporting this like so well. So it you you get a significant improvement in your quality of life if you move to a tool like MyPy and start using my Python and, and Python hints. So uh, type hints in Python. There's some things to watch out for. So as this new release rolls out, they are changing their numbering scheme. It used to be like 0 0.999, you know, they kept kind of extending this like 0 0.9 uh, beta release window. But it's actually now 1.0. It is not Simver. Uh, so do not count on minor releases not having backward incompatibilities, uh, although they should be very minimal is what they claim. But something you may want to be aware of if you are uh, upgrading this. And when you go in and pin your you know, MyPy version, you want to be really explicit about it because they're going to make sure they announce those significant backward incompatibilities in any kind of blog posts in the release before that feature releases. So the idea you say is, it has a like a, a gut feel ver. Yeah, yeah, right. Transfer, like what's the official term? Like, yeah, it feels like a big release. Let's go ahead and change this part of the version. But on, on that same note, the, they do have uh, feature flags for this. So if there is a new big feature coming that is going to be a backward incompatible feature, the previous release notes will note it. 
the release will have it, there'll be a flag to turn it on so you can try it out easily in your workflow, see what breaks without having to you know, downgrade, re-upgrade, downgrade, re-upgrade. So you can actually turn it on and off and, and make sure mm. it works inside your, your workflow and your process. Uh, lots of performance improvements. So 1.0 is 40% faster than 0.991. Uh, there's about 20 optimizations in this list. And this is, a, you can see by my scroll bar, there's a ton of stuff that happened when they went to release 1.0. Uh, but some more things in here that are nice features, for example, warning about variables before definition kind of goes along with this possibly undefined variables. So for example, if B is never true, X never happens, you'll never be able to print X. MyPy will tell you about that before you ever run your code. So it's kind of like just a lot of those belts and suspenders, nice safety checks, keep your code nice and clean, combine this with you know tools like Black and things like that to just have super tight code that is uh, easy to read for everybody. Uh, some new features that are supported as of uh, Python 3.11, the new self-type is supported. Uh, so if you are uh, having a method that returns an instance of the class, uh, you can use the self-type so that if you have a subclass, you get the correct subclass re uh, return instead of having to explicitly you know, redefine that for every subclass you are doing. So more convenience methods for those who are diving deep into the, the typing system here. The self-type is so good. Yeah, it, it, it really it's seems so like it cleans up a lot of problems. It was really janky to, you know, oh, <laughs> if you're inside the class, you put in quotes, the name of the class. Well, how's it supposed to find <laughs> right. you know, that one? Or if it's going to create a circular dependency, you've got to do weird things. So yeah. yeah, that's really, really nice. I, I do wish that Python had like a two-stage parser aspect where it would say, go through, here's all the stuff that's defined in the class. Oh, here's some type things and other reference we might not know what that is let's go all through and then go back again and see if we can figure out what that is you know but the way it works now is when you're in the middle of a class it that class doesn't exist yet because it's not done to find it until you're at the end but if you got to say i'm going to compare this against another one of me well <laughs> how do you say that in types self <laughs> right it's nice. that's what we got yeah. no, and I, I can see this like being rolled in to prop, proper python it seems like at some point i, I yeah. just feel like types went on from being this pie in the sky idea to a bolted on type feature to it's really getting ironed out and really support well supported by the community but really well supported by all the editors uh, yeah, there's some new param spec stuff in here um that i don't know too much about param specs that i'm not a, we're not heavy into types yet we're doing a lot uh, with django and doing some type ins there to start making some apis but that's where we're still diving in bunch of new like miscellaneous features so if you are looking for features galore that has happened in mypy 1.0 uh, there's a bunch of fixes to crashes so this seems like it's a really robust release um, another important one here is going to be the python 310 match statement support so it can compile those as well so they're staying on top of all the the recent language features uh, which are is obviously what's needed to get momentum behind a project like this. I, I think anybody who's using TypeHints better be using uh, the MyPy stuff. Uh, for those who don't know, it's also uh, supported by Dropbox. So when I said 40%, or no, yeah, the 40% uh, faster, that was actually running against the Dropbox you know, main code base. So oh, they're wow. actually, that's the benchmark against Dropbox itself. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, MyPy C is pretty an interesting thing that opens up once you start to adopt types. For me, the main reason I use types in my world, and I realize that I, I I live in a different world than a lot of folks, but for me, it's really about making the editor tell me mm -hmm. what it it should know already and not, do I need to go look in that method? Does this actually take, when it says user ID, is that a, a string or is that a, a BSON from MongoDB? I can't remember what kind of thing this stores for this. 
it says, you know, and yeah. then, oh, okay, that's obvious, right? Just so you don't have to keep bouncing around. You just stay stay in, in the way you're trying to focus. And I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's that extra smarts. I mean, you, you thought if, you, if you're using a PyCharm or VS Code and you thought it was smart before, uh, once you introduce these types in there, it gets even smarter. Absolutely. All right, awesome. Awesome one. Now, two pieces of real-time feedback. One, I found out with the untangle that if you have multiple one, multiple nodes of the same thing, like you would in an RSS feed, you have multiple posts or a blog post, same thing for the posts. Um, the, you just still say root dot, you know, main thing dot child or whatever the name of that node is, that becomes a list instead of a single thing if there's more than one. Okay, uh, so that's pretty interesting. And then the other one here is, over to you, Brian. Uh, yeah. Jeff asked, can an old project be converted to work with Flit? And yes. Probably, maybe. <laughs> it really depends <laughs> on the project. <laughs> well, some of it can be re. You, there's not that much to it, right? There's a pyproject.toml and a few other things, and it's probably not that much work to uh, migrate it, I guess. Yeah, but I mean, an old. I'm assuming by old project, it's a setup to an old setup.py setup tools project, and you could do anything in that. So, uh, if you were going crazy, you, you can't go crazy anymore. But um, but if it was a fairly simple, straightforward, then yeah, probably. If you were going crazy, you get what you deserve. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, before we, uh, before we move on to our next topic, well, let me tell you about our sponsor for this week, Microsoft First Startups Founders Hub. Really great program. If you have a startup and you want to get tons of support, not just technical support, but also networking with people who have founded their own startups, then you should check out Microsoft for Startup Founders Hub. As Brian mentioned last time, we heard back from one of our listeners who signed up and had done several startups and said, I was a little skeptical, but this is a really great program. It's fantastic for us. And I just wanted to let you know how well it's working out. So definitely a good program. People check it out. So what it is, is Microsoft created this program to help people become successful starting a business. By some estimates, 90% of startups go out of business within the first year. That's not what you want for your startup. You want it to succeed. So with Microsoft for Startup Founders Hub, you get access to free resources. So this includes platform technologies like Azure, GitHub. They partner with OpenAI. I've heard ChatGTP is catching on, so that's kind of cool. So you get access to some of the resources from them, which is fantastic. But you also get access to the mentorship network, which I think maybe is even the most important part. You get access to a pool of hundreds of mentors across ranges of disciplines, across areas like idea valid validation, fundraising, management and coaching, sales and marketing, and others. So you can go and book one-on-one -on -one meetings with these folks, and many of them are former founders themselves. So you can make your idea a make your idea reality today with the critical support you get from Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Just visit pythonbytes.fm slash foundershub 2022 to get uh, to go apply the links in your show notes you don't have to be vc backed you don't have to be third-party validated you just apply if they they like what you want it's free and, and they'll take you under the program and you can get started so thank you to microsoft for supporting our show and with that brian over to you yeah so <laughs> go back to the same article for a second <laughs> just scroll um, a little further down the same page okay yeah. got it so um in within the same packaging py python projects thing 
there was um um uh, I have a reason to bring this up, but anyway, it lists a whole bunch of tools you can use to um for your back build a backend. Uh, it's got PDM, Flit, setup tools, and Hatchling. There's another page on the same in PyPI or PyPA that is the packaging flow. And this one talks about it as a more of a high level. It's not a tutorial talks about the high level thing. And there it lists all of those flit, hatch, PDM, poetry, subtools, and then also trampoline and way, which I've not heard of. So this, this can cause confusion. And that's really what we're talking about is uh, I have, and I'm bringing this up because just independent of my involvement with uh, Python bytes, I've, I've been involved with people having trouble figuring out how to package their Python code independently. I got a web developer doing it, a uh, tools backend person, and then somebody that's just trying, he's a C-sharp person that just was trying to package a, a front end to his tool, a Python front end. And he was like, I don't, I don't know how to do all this. And it, it is confusing. And it even is confusing for seasoned uh, Python developers. And here we've got, oh, I didn't, I didn't link it right now. But there's um there was a, a, a Doug Hellman from uh, Module of the Week posted that he was a uh, he's published lots of packages and he went to do it again and was a little lost and wanted some advice. So it, it, new people or people that are outside of the scope um, are confused, um, and I, I think it's fair to recognize that. And so um, there's a lot of discussion around it and Pradyon put together a blog post uh, was talking about it on uh, uh, on discuss and yeah. he put together an article called thoughts on the Python packaging ecosystem. And I think it's a kind of a fair discussion around it. And one of the points is that <laughs> um, a lot of Python users are not software engineers and, but we also have to recognize that a lot are. Um, so um, there's a, it's a diverse ecosystem and I think it's, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess for a while. And I think it's going to be, I think it's good that it's a mess in some cases. It's good that we have, we don't just have setup tools now. We have a lot of ways that are working on different pieces of the problem of, of uh, uh, you know, how to make it easier uh, around project.toml and you can have a different build backend. But we've, the, uh, he breaks down the points. Um, it's a big article, but one of the things is, it kind of unintentionally, the packaging ecosystem unintentionally became a competitive space that it is today. Um, and maybe we need to make an ex, uh, the community needs to make an explicit decision if we should op continue operating under that model uh, that led to what we have now. Um, we could pick from in different tools to do in different things. That's a good model, according to this. Um, or uh, in approximately the same choices to get a really bad user experience, bad for some people, good for others. Um, and then you know, also maybe we should pick a default because picking a default doesn't make the other approaches illegal. They just aren't the default. And I'm kind of leaning towards that. I think it would be good to have something, but I'm not sure what. Um, down Longer down the line, uh, pardon me of the scroll, um, is PIP. One of the ideas is maybe we should have PIP. Well, okay, I'll back up a little bit. Some of these tools like Poetry and PDM are workflow tools and other tools like uh, like Flit are more build. Flit's more like I want to build, just build a wheel. It also does publish, but mostly the, the workload is around building the wheel. 
Um, whereas PDM and uh, poetry are like this whole workflow thing, control your virtual environment, um, do a whole bunch of stuff. And I know a lot of people from other languages like JavaScript and uh, uh, other, maybe Go, I don't know, are used to these like these high-end workflow things that do everything for you. But we're already used to a multi-tool model now, so I'm not sure how to get from here to there. Interesting, it would be interesting that, to have PIP do it. I mean, we already all use PIP, so could PIP expand to do both the focus thing it's doing now, installing a package, um, and and then also do some workflow stuff? And I, I guess I'd be kind of open to explore that idea, but I was curious what yeah. you guys thought. I'd be open to explore it. I not to disparage anything, but I personally dislike the things that try to put their workflow onto you. I, I'd much rather have something simpler. And someone who teaches Python, this is a huge problem for people getting into the language. They feel like it's a, it's a big challenge. Why is it so hard? Why do I have yeah. to learn all these things? I picked the wrong thing and now am I screwed? No, you're not out of luck. You just, you just delete your virtual environment and start over. But yes, things are a little, you know, I, think, I think having many of them, one, is a problem. And I think something that ha forces workflows on you, I'm not a huge fan of. Um, I feel like we, we've already got lots of tools that solve it pretty well. I'm kind of not against PIP doing a little bit more. I use PIP tools for managing my dependencies, and it is so good. It is so good. You state just your top-level dependencies, and when it's time to, let's see what new, let's make sure we upgrade to the new things, you just run PIP tools upgrade, and it'll regenerate. You can evaluate what the changes are. It's I really, really like PIP tools. I think it's it's a much simpler scenario than a lot of them. Oh, I, and I know other people so really like them, would, but anyway, this, this is what I like. We could possibly leave PIP alone and expand PIP tools to do the rest of the workflow stuff. Maybe. Yes, I, potentially. I, 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 yeah, it's like we could, but I, I kind of agree with that. Like Unix small tools do one thing really well, which is why I've kind of gone with the the pip tools approach as well, because I really feel like pip tools does such an incredible job at that dependency resolution and getting you exactly what you need, bet way better, way way better and way faster than pip itself does. I think that approach that like Flit takes, it seems like I don't, I've never used Flit, but the fact that it can just wrap around pre existing tools to provide a common interface for for users to be able to build, package, push, the whole the whole deal seems like really nice because it, it guides them through step-by-step step that process until maybe at some point they don't need it or they just enjoy it and it's using the, some of those standard tools behind the scenes. Yeah. But I'm also with Michael. I don't like the predefined workflows. That like I'm, I'm not a huge fan of poetry necessarily because uh, it just doesn't fit the way my brain wants to work down a project. And I'm not surprised. So <laughs> I, was th I was thinking an analogy of like, if you're going to have a pocket knife, which tools should be in the pocket knife? And if you go yeah. into like the medium pocket knives on the Victoria Knox site, oh no, it won't load. You get like tons, even the small ones. So the medium ones, you get like tons of different tools. Which tools should be there? Nobody's going to agree. Um, and I thought, well, at, at least in the small ones, maybe people can agree because, uh, oh no, not even oh, no. in the small <laughs> ones, people can't agree uh, which should go together. So. Yeah, I want my um, my Swiss Army knife to also have drywall tools and something <laughs> for my car. <laughs> but it seems it seems like the combination though of really small tools to do one thing really well with some tools to layer on top of it, whether it's your IDE, whether it's Flit, and yeah. they can have the opinionated workflows layered on top of they they rest on top of a solid set of identical tools that produce the identical thing. Yeah. I, I'm I'm in that camp as well. That's why, but I totally get that that's confusing for people. Oh, totally so, confusing. 
I mean, yeah. I mean, the first time I go to explain to someone how they're going to manage like their dependencies on a Django project, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to step back and think about the 20 steps that kind of go into how I learned to do this, that I'm now explaining to some new person. I'm like, I'm sorry, this doesn't sound easy at all. There's got to be a better way, but I don't know if there is. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. Okay. Rabbit hole, but. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, the, the Python packaging is the ultimate rabbit hole in the Python community. Yeah. Speaking of packages. <laughs> Michaels, you want to jump into the, yours? I do want to talk about more packages. This is the simplified version, but also a bit of real-time follow-up as well. Uh, again, I'm having many of the folks that were on that discuss thread that you mentioned, Brian, about this topic on TalkPython probably in a couple of weeks as a big okay. panel discussion about it. So, so if you all want to hear more of this, but for a long time and with the folks who are participating and, and dive on in. Okay. Oh, also, apparently, I said chat GTP rather than I meant chat GPT, as Sharaf pointed out. So thanks for that. That's the one I meant. You know the one. All right. So there's this cool uh, GitHub page, I guess, called Top PyPI Packages. And so this is a pretty neat uh, place. It shows you the top 5,000 most downloaded PyPI packages updated monthly. So you can scroll down here and you can say, show me the top 100, show me the top 1,000, whatever. I'll, I'll pull up the 1,000 for you, Brian. There you go. So these are updated over the last 30 days. And it actually says when it was last updated, and that was February 1st, which is a week ago as of this recording. So that's pretty fresh, really. And so you can find things like PyTest Check. Is that in here somewhere, Brian? It's in, it's. In the top 5,000, but not the top 1,000. Oh, okay. Did I do the wrong one? Sorry. I tried to pull you up there. But you see things like Boto3 and URLib are the most popular. So Boto3 is downloaded 522 million times um, every month, every 30 days or so, which is just insane. You got to be careful because some of these are really popular dependencies rather than directly really important libraries. Like I use Boto3 all the time as a dependency, the less often directly definitely for your lib3 i don't think i've ever used it directly but it, obviously it gets installed but i don't use many things so this is pretty cool if people want to check it out calvin what do you think oh i'm excited about this too because it's it, just thinking about the number of times the amazon cloud must go download photo three from like <laughs> pipi <laughs> mind-blowing like just all the serverless that's on yes. servers someplace downloading packages in the background now, now you get a feel for it with a big number yeah, it's really nuts, which is also a little bit ironic because it comes from AWS and they send it over yeah. to PyPI and then it comes back to AWS. <laughs> it's, it's a like weird Rugolian world. Fast, don't they use Fastly for their CDN? I think they use Fastly. Uh, PyPI? Yeah. I believe so. Yeah. It's like yeah. they have to go to a competitor to get like... <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, how interesting. So this is interesting in and of itself, and it tells you which ones are there. And there's an API which you can hit, uh, let's not hit the minified one, let's hit the non-minified one. And it'll tell you actually returns when it was updated, uh, what the query was, et cetera, et cetera. And so you actually can get this as a JSON endpoint, which is pretty cool. It's just a static file that gets updated you know, every couple of days on this GitHub page setup. So that's a, also an interesting way to think of an API. My API is a static file that periodically gets refreshed, but there it is. So uh, you don't think you heard of much there. I kind of love it though. It's just I a kind of do too. Just the a static cache. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Think how scalable that bad boy is. Okay. Especially <laughs> if you put a CDN behind it. And then related to that, by the same person, there is Hugovic 
top PyPI packages on GitHub, which is a regular dump of the most downloaded packages from PyPI. So that sounds like, yeah, Michael, you told us about that. Thanks a bunch. No, it's not the names. It's all of it. It's all of the data <laughs> that is here. Uh, where do they have it? This one? I don't know if I want to open this up, but it's really big. So it's all the XML. I'm not sure where it is in here, but it's all the XML files of, or J, rather, XML, the JSON files that Untangle got me thinking XML. So it's all the JSON files of, of what comes out of the PyPI API, but all of them. It's when I checked it out and unzipped it and it was like 22 gigs on disk. So this is a big beast right here if you uh, if you download it. Actually, no, this is not the right link. Uh, I have to find it. Uh, I'll put it in the show notes. But there's this guy. Darn it. This is the wrong one. But there's also linked off of this. There's one where you get all of the packages, which is uh, which all the JSON for every package. I'll have to figure out where I got that from. Unfortunately, it's the wrong link I pulled up. But anyway, these are both really cool resources. And you'll have to check the links for that other one. Cool. Yeah, yeah. All right. Calvin. Well, cup coming in at 57 on that list for the last 30 days is SQL Alchemy. <laughs> <Nice. laughs> so the, for those of you who aren't familiar and do like Swiss Army Knives, this is the Swiss Army Knife of database tools. Uh, it's not only an ORM, but it has a whole SQL toolkit um, built into it. So if you've never touched SQL Alchemy, but do deal with databases, you may want to check this out. And more importantly, and this kind of ties in with my previous announcement on the, the MyPy 1.0 release, there's a lot more support in this release for uh, types and typing. So there's you know kind of native out of the box MyPy experience has been improved. Now the uh, the author of SQL Alchemy, Mike Bayer, is actually going to be joining us in a few weeks here at Python Web Conference and giving a tutorial length session on SQL Alchemy. He did this last time two years ago when he released 1.4. So the, if for those of you who kind of been following along in the background, the 1.4 release was kind of the first half of this major a revamp of SQL Alchemy into this new world. And so 2.0 is the, the second half of that revamp. So it's really been like four years coming for this major release of SQL Alchemy. So if you want to know what's new and hear it from the horse's mouth, uh, Mike Bear is going to be joining us and he'll be happy to answer all of your questions. Let's see, there's a ton of uh, new things released in here. I think if I scroll down, yeah, so plug-in free, 484 compatible ORM syntaxes. So again, kind of ripping out the old stuff. Um, all the typing support in here is, you know, all fresh. If you are using the um, MyPy plugins from before, you're going to want to take all those out. Uh, they're considered deprecated at this point. So those that's something that's very important for you to consider. But now SQL Alchemy 2.0 is using all the new Python 3 uh, wonderfulness of like uh, data classes, enums, inline annotations. It's just really a, a nice modernization of a really powerful package. Uh, see what else was in here that was of, of super importance. Oh, yeah, some performance stuff. So this all new fully integrated ORM approach to bulk inserts is quite interesting. Uh, you will get a major speed increase, except if you're using MySQL. Uh, the MySQL folks have not uh, implemented the insert returning syntax. But if you're on MariaDB, you're good to go. Uh, so that's something to pay attention to. The, in addition to that performance, there's also the bulk optimized schema reflection. So if you were, were using SQL Alchemy, it was basically doing a table by table uh, reflection. Uh, if you were asking it for metadata about the tables, now in all of the backends, there is basically a, um, oh, sorry, I think it's only for Postgres and Oracle right now. So Postgres and Oracle, 
support the bulk schema uh, upgrades. You can see right here for Postgres, a 250% improvement and for Oracle, a 900% uh, improvement. Um, I'm not sure what it was doing before, but it's a heck of a lot faster now at 900% improvement. Uh, always a, a benefit there. And in addition, I, I'll kind of point out some other things that were in the migration guide and the what's new in 2.0 guide. You're going to want to make sure you check those out here. There's like the migration process uh, link from this article or blog post. You're going to want to make sure you read through those because there's major incompatibilities from 1.4 into 2.0. But the, um, the migration guide is really similar to like the 2 to 3 guide Python had. Tells you how to you know, mechanically go through and, and make sure you're going to be compatible for the latest version of SQL Alchemy. Another speed improvement here is that all the native uh, C extensions have been ported to Cython. Some of them are they're all as fast. Some of them are slightly faster than their previous C extensions. But this also removes you know, risks of you know, memory corruption and stomping on each other and things that C does uh, really well that you don't want. Uh, so that's also a nice benefit. And then the kind of tying into that same benefit is the SQL Alchemy is now PEP 517 uh, enabled. So that means the PyProject TOML file that we just saw in the last couple of announcements is supported, which means when you're on your local machine and doing a source build of SQL Alchemy, it can automatically go grab some of the dependencies such as Cython, uh, which can be tricky to get installed for some people. So that is simplifying a lot of people's lives uh, to go to put SQL Alchemy 2.0. Yeah, SQL Alchemy 2.0 is a huge release. It, yeah, it's, it's a big been deal. Years. It's been years in the coming, and it was in this intermediate 1.4 mode where you could choose either API, and they finally removed some things. But to me, the biggest deal is the async. Yeah. Right? It's In the prior versions, there was just no way to do any async things, which meant all, uh, on all the scalable areas, you were kind of stuck trying to find somewhere else to go. Now, if you really like SQL Alchemy, you can just use the async API. Yeah, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from those types, all the type support in MyPy native support. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the, editor. <laughs> the bulk inserts have always been a hassle in ORMs. So it sounds like that's really gotten a lot of love too. Yeah, definitely. I look forward to it. I do as well. All right. Well, that's all of our, our topics. Brian, what do you got for us as an extra? Uh, I guess just um, uh, one quick extra is like one of the things I've been working on on the side is I'm going to build a, I'm going to create a new build backend for Python and a new workflow tool. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. Uh, but so, what will you name it? <laughs> um, well, I, I think Flick because I always thought Flit should have been Flick. So like a little football. So yeah. There you and, go. So uh, how about let's go to Calvin's extras. Sure. So I kind of mentioned this in the intro, but we are putting on the Python Mub Conference. Uh, this will be our fifth annual. So big five years. Uh, I'm wearing one of the, the, the jerseys from last year. You can't see it, but it was uh, really awesome last year. We had 90 speakers. We had, I think it was over 400 attendees, something like 23 or 22 time zones. Like it was really a global event. That's one of the things I'm really proud of. This this event was meant to fill a, a hole, I felt like, in the Python community for folks who couldn't travel, couldn't afford to go to an in-person conference or wasn't a regional conference near them. I know the PSF's doing a lot of work right now and getting some regional conferences into other areas, but this is still will, and will always be virtual and always be accessible to folks. Uh, so if you go and register and you can't afford to pay for this. We do have a grant program. Uh, we want to make sure that if you have a need to be in this room, you should be in this room and everyone is included. Uh, this year is going to be no exception. There's a lot of amazing speakers who have joined us. It'll be five half days uh, from the 13th to the 17th. 
there'll be a keynote speaker kickoff every day, a keynote speaker at the end of every day. And uh, there's some awesome speakers coming up. We've got some people from uh, GitLab. We've been focusing on finding some folks from uh, climate initiatives to actually come and give some of our talks where they're using technology for good in, in these areas. Uh, there'll be a set of tutorials as well. So I mentioned Mike Bear's tutorial already, uh, but there'll be three or four other tutorials as well. Uh, I know Matt Harrison's going to be giving one of the tutorials, uh, not tutorial, he'll be giving a keynote uh, this year. So he's back again from uh, last year. He gave a keynote and a tutorial. Uh, man's the hardest working man in Python, uh, but we really appreciate him uh, joining us as well. And if you've got questions, uh, make sure you just go to pythonwebconf.com. You can also find me on you know, Calvin HP on Twitter. There's also a Twitter account for Python WebConf, so you can follow Python WebConf on all the socials and join us. There'll be socials actually during the event as well, so it should be tons of fun. Uh, we'll have uh, just everything for the community. So I have a question right off the bat. Yeah. It says WebConf. If I'm not a web developer, am I still going to be interested in this? Or is it that's, primarily web development? That's an excellent question, Brian. Um, we originally, the WebConf name meant a conference for web people. But we switched it around, you know, because we felt like this was an opportunity for the conference for Python to be on the web. And now we have AppDev track, which is like not more than just web. We'll have a cloud track. We will have a PyData track. It's actually a, officially sanctioned PyData uh, event, and we have a culture track in addition okay. to the tutorial. So there, there is actually something for everybody in the Python world here. Uh, we're really trying to, again, I've mentioned filling the gap for people who can't make it to specific conferences. We're also trying to fill the gap for talks that I feel are a little more on the intermediate uh, to advanced level. Uh, okay. If you're looking for very entry-level tutorials, this may not be the conference for you. I mean, there'll be great community, lots of questions you can ask, and there'll be tutorials. But I really wanted to make sure that the talks kind of scaled up that next notch. Um, when I go to a lot of regional conferences or even PyCon, there's some entry-level stuff there that's great for people who are new to Python. This is that next step. Cool. Um, don't need to cut you off, but can we see if Michael's got any extras? Yeah. I do. Uh one while Calvin's thing is up, I'm going to be speaking at that there conference about making your Python web apps fly with CDNs. Speaking of CDNs earlier, so I'm really excited about that one. That's a fun topic. But I want to tell you a couple of tips and tricks. I'll keep these short here, but they're they're kind of fun. So I recently discovered that with many of the browsers, like uh, Vivaldi or Chrome, sadly not Firefox. Honestly, that's one of the reasons I quit using Firefox. They support progressive web apps, which many people may know. But even if you have a thing that is not a progressive web app, you can install it as a standalone, from your perspective, application that lives in the dock. So the thing I got on my screen and I linked to in the show notes is, here's my Vivaldi, but then I have my different mail clients. I got ProtonMail and Gmail, and I got the Google Calendar. All of those are just regular web apps. I don't think any of them are progressive web apps. But if you right-click on the tab, you say Create Shortcut, and say Open in a Window, they become their own little app that you have you put in your dock or your taskbar or whatever so for example like here's proton mail running you can see again link in the show notes to the picture and it just looks like an app like you would know it was an app it does you'd think it was an electron js app basically but so if, if you want to have those as separate things you can have running an alt tab or control tab over to there you go it's like, oh no i closed my browser and my mail's gone again i gotta open it back up right if that ever frustrates you here's a cool fix for it all right um also, speaking of Proton, I started using Simple Login. Have either of you all used this? No. So I have a pro account at Proton, which is like, I don't know, a couple dollars a month for a bunch of years if you pay like way in advance, I think. 
uh, it's not very much, but along with that comes this thing called simple logon, which every time you go to a website, I don't think I have the extension in this um, profile in my browser, but if you go to a website, it suggests, hey, we'll create an automatic fake one-off email address that gets sent to wherever you decide it gets sent to, and you can reply to it and it goes back through there and, and things like that. It's really cool. So like if I went to um, arstechnica.com and I created it, it would be like some random thing at arstechnica-simplelogon-ish.io or whatever. So you kind of know where it comes from, but it's it's if you want to just delete that and make it mail stop or you can figure out if it's sold or whatever. So anyway, recommendation on checking that as well. It's also open source. You can host it yourself if if you like hosting email. I don't really feel like <laughs> I don't feel like doing that. If if you've heard about a new topic, if you've heard about all the crazy stuff with chips, the Chips Act in the U.S., similar stuff in Europe. If you've heard about Biden banning chips or the U.S. government banning chips to be used in certain things, primarily in China, but you know. There's a bunch of angles in which this kind of stuff is heating up, not just with the U.S., but primarily uh, around the U.S. There's an incredibly good documentary on um, on YouTube called U.S. versus China, The War You Can't See that talks about the history of this. And it just reminds me of how much good stuff there is on YouTube. I mean, I know there's a lot of stupid cats falling off of chairs and like idiots, but uh, hidden in there, there are some like this is a better documentary than you would find on you know professional top tier television networks it's you know really good so anyway if that's interesting I will, to you i will i will second that uh, documentary note um i have a 15 year old here who's obsessed with long form youtube and some of the things he has shown me has just blown my mind like why the yeah. superconducting super collider didn't succeed eight hours of like documentary on that i was like yeah what yeah, there's there is no more Discovery Channel. There's no more History Channel. Yeah, I, I know they exist in name, but not in what they were, where they actually have real science and real information. <laughs> They're just reality TV and other silly stuff. <laughs> so, all right, I know we'll get short on time, Brian. So uh, I'll go quick. Um, Talk Python's hiring. So I'm looking to hire somebody that does Flutter and Dart, not Python, because if it's Python, I'd be doing it myself. But if you're out there and you have experience with publishing apps and Flutter apps in particular to the various app stores. If you're used to working on like Android and iOS and others with Flutter, and you can show me an app in the app store, I would love to work with you. I'm gonna post this somewhere uh, pretty soon, but I wanna put it out to the community first because I'd rather hire somebody from our community than just some random person off the internet. And it's primarily to do a complete rework of our mobile apps for TalkPython training. So that'll be a lot of nice. fun if people are interested. Just, just email me. Um, Michael at docpython.fm. That's it. Those are all my extras. Yeah. Thanks. Calvin, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I, I really enjoy it. It's lots of fun. I get to go learn new things each time I come. <laughs> yeah, that, we do every time we show up as well. It's a lot of fun. Yep. All right. And Brian, thanks as always. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye.